0: Hey folks. Thanks for coming back. This is the Poor Pearls Almanac and this is Andy again coming to you with that fresh leftist prepper content. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcasts. We've gotten to the point where we have squeezed out all the freebies we could for a podcast storage. So if you're enjoying it, please help us offset some of the costs of managing this. If we get more than we need, we'll be donating it to a good cause and we'll keep you in the loop. Also, today we've got Elliot.
1: Hey guys, my name's Elliot. I'm a part of the Poor Pearls Almanac. I'll be hosting along with Andy here. I'm the co-host. This is the first time we've been able to get together since uh, this whole pandemic has started. Uh, first things first, hate how my voice sounds in the recording, so we'll just have to edit that out and we'll do it live. <laughs> but uh, I feel very comfortable with this big black thing in my face.
0: Had to break the ice somehow.
1: Yeah. All right. So while we do enjoy making this content, there's about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can uh, get, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. Additionally, if you're using iTunes, please give us a review, so make sure folks find the podcast and hopefully join us. Additionally, if you are using iTunes, please give us a review, so
0: I can't do this. Yeah, see, it's not as easy as it looks. It's not. I make it look so easy, and yet here we are.
1: Additionally, if you are using. Jesus what? Sorry, it's just a bunch of weed. Additionally, if you're using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Also, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there. If this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode that we made and catching up since each episode springs boards off the previous content. And for those of you that are returning, if you haven't started to realize yet, we started with the big picture, global warming, and complex systems, down to the smaller features of this in order to build out a comprehensive framework for how these things tie together and further how they integrate into human systems, which is what we're trying to do here. So this episode is a little different than in the past. Instead, we'll be talking about Catherine Tumber's book uh, from a decade ago, titled Small, Gritty, and Green, as a part of a series we'll be doing about reimagining the framework of the world around us and how we can rebuild everyday life in a way that incorporates the world we're inheriting
0: all right nice we'll try one more you want to try again or you want to go with that you think that's good i'll make it work okay all right all right so well i read this when it came out i was a very long time ago thinking about going to school for architecture and urban design and I was like, oh, this sounds awesome. And I read it and at the time I was like, ah, it's all right. But now I think 2010 to 2020, the world's a lot different. It's not about fixing the systems that exist that are creating these problems, but instead focusing on ways to minimize how much change we have to make in order to make things sustainable. And I think that kind of misses the boat and this book does a really good job of highlighting that.
1: I can agree with that. I only read uh, two chapters, uh, chapters three and four, out of Small, Gritty, and Green, again by Catherine Tumber. Um, I, after reading the introduction and after the book set up, it places a framework for how um, you can reshape and reimage the cities and the infrastructure that we have in place. And it's sort of in, instead of starting from scratch, you can uh, you know, pick up the pieces from where other places have failed and sort of build from there. and that jumping point that she sort of points out is um, a resource that we can definitely use I think and I think the way that she points it out and the way that she frames it in the book like definitely sets up what we were going for in this podcast and in this episode.
0: Yeah so one of the things I thought was really interesting the way she framed up the text was that the beginning of the book she really talks about um, the malleability and why small cities are more manageable in a lot of ways, more sustainable in a, lot of, in a lot of ways because of the fact that they're so flat. There's no density issues both physically and in terms of wealth um, that exist in major metropolises, metropolises. So I think it, it's really interesting the way she frames it up and it's very much like a, without coming to those exact terms, a very anarchist way of looking at the urban space, which I thought was really awesome because at the time when I'd read this the first time, I probably wouldn't have identified. Um, that closely to an anarchist, whereas today, a decade later, I feel like there's a lot of hallmarks from it that just read really well into that lens. Um, and I think it highlights a lot of the resilience issues that we talked about when we talked about the environment, that you have these specializations that exist, you have these layers that exist within your, your ecosystems and in your um, holistic sense of regenerative farming that um, also play out in different roles within the urban space. And uh, she really does a great job of highlighting that formation that exists in those urban spaces. What I thought was really useful too in the text is that she takes the time to really provide the the framework historically to why the cities are the way they are. Yeah, and, I uh, agree with that for you know, sure. We both of us grew up in one of those old urban cities that um, used to be a jewelry center of the country. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, y-
1: the outside of Mill City, country basically. Yeah,
0: yeah, you know, one of those secondary cities that. Uh, sprung up because of a very niche market mm-hmm. and having access to rivers you know in New England that's not uncommon but it's still something that was really interesting for us and that you know wh- there are multiple cities that she mentions that she toured for this book that either I'm from or my family's from for us in like the northeast anywhere that's not Boston or New York is pretty much flyover country, even if it is an urban space. Sure. Um, And, uh, you know, those urban spaces come with many of the same challenges. Yeah. I know one city in particular, I used to run a nonprofit, and in New Bedford, um, one of the things that we highlighted when we were talking about different inequity issues was that, you know, the city I was working in, which was a much smaller city and one that wasn't considered, you know, a high risk or high crime or anything like that, when you look per capita at things like, how many students qualified for free or reduced lunch. It was the same as someplace like New Bedford, which is one of the poorest cities in the Northeast, despite the fact that they have all these resources that make them incredibly resilient uh, with the right infrastructure.
1: Yeah, and I think it narrows it down to distribution of wealth, where these cities and these places where they have resources to use, and they do, like I said, they are sitting on the infrastructure where they can uh, regain some sort of capital, Uh, from their city and localize it and keep it in the economy and keep things going where we look at these cities and they don't have exports and we see them as as if they're dying and they're not there there is something there and i think she she highlights that a little bit with just the uh, reimagining of these cities like we were talking about at the beginning of the episode
0: yeah so i think the first part of the book really focuses on how we got here and it's really an interesting question and story and i think it also helps highlight of what's happening right now across the country Despite not being specifically a political podcast, I think it makes sense to contextualize a lot of what's going on in order to resolve these issues. As the railways of the 19th century defined which hubs would become focal points in industrialized America, megacenters emerged, such as New York, as main hubs across the country where rail and resources were able to come together in an accessible place. Many rail-only hubs later began to develop as secondary cities, accessible by main cities for specific goods and became known as one or two company towns, which employed the vast majority of workers. The most easily to identify examples today are cities in the Midwest which supplied resources for things like the automotive industry. Small cities always occupied an ambiguous place in American culture, especially before suburban sprawl became a marker of American culture. They were often somewhat self-sustaining in the sense that their resources were always locally sourced, folks worked within the small city, and there was always easy access into and out of city for rural folks outside of its borders. As the 20th century rolled around, a clear division existed between the major urban centers and these small, peripheral cities, and urban planners worked to find new ways to create the cities of the future, as was all the rage at the time. However, many prominent thinkers of the time, as well as the writers of the time, showed strong disdain for the smaller cities as they were considered to be residences for the dull-minded, simple folk, and a quick review of popular culture reflects this attitude. Despite that, the urban planners envisioned a world in which these cities would be retooled to meet the challenges of the future. As far back as John Nolan's book, Replanning Small Cities, written in 1912. Smaller cities were in an optimal position to replan for the future, since scarcely anything in the smaller cities could not be changed. Nolan's plan was ahead of its time in that he sought to establish the individuality of a city to catch its particular spirit, to preserve its distinctive flavor, to accent its particular region. And I think that's something that's been pretty much lost in a lot of communities. I mean, I we've traveled up and down the East Coast numerous times between the both of us. Yep. And anywhere you stop off on the highway, looks just like anywhere else. You have those corporate franchises that have taken over everything, the suburban sprawl, the guidelines from various uh, zoning ordinances that specify the same square footage for frontage on each road, mm-hmm. uh, all these markers that really define American decadence.
1: And she references uh, Main Street and Wall Street. And that's the differences between these, you know, um, the mega cities and all of the cities on the East Coast that want to resemble those mega cities. They have these main strips and main streets that, you know, run through and there's shopping malls and things off the
0: side. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, when we say Wall Street versus Main Street, in this context, at least, you know, what's happening and what has happened and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it, is that Wall Street has provided the capital for the investment in these communities, whether it's through a vulture capitalist model of you know what you saw with the venture capitalists with Toys R Us, mm-hmm. where they invested money to buy assets, to drain those ass- assets as a leverage tool to enrich the investors with the long-term goal of the, the business not being sustainable, but rather liquidate everything that the business had in order to essentially extract that money. Except it wasn't being recirculated into the economy. Right. One of the things we had talked about in the first episode about global warming and climate change was complex systems, in that you had this dynamic effect of an animal or a plant or a bacteria. That would do something, and it would cause four or five, six reactions. That would then cause other reactions, and right. is that energy being reused repeatedly? You know, we have a similar term for in economics is the time velocity of money. Yes. And if money is not being recirculated into the local economy, it's being funneled off into Wall Street. You know, all these small towns that we're considering underutilized, um, uneducated in this perspective, that money has just been sucked out of those communities, quite literally, to fund... That Wall Street that has no real relationship to those communities,
1: right? And no ties, no bearing, and that money doesn't come back when when we say it leaves the community, it leaves the community, and it, you lose those resources to to improve your community and fix all of those problems that we were talking about, where you know there's kids that don't have enough money for aided lunch.
0: Yeah. So this is very topical in the sense that you know we're talking about within the confines of the econo- uh, economy we live in with right now, the politics we live in right now. But I do think it's worth looking at because of the fact that we can see how resources have been allocated and what has and hasn't worked, in which most cases, what has worked has been in the past, and what hasn't worked is what's going on right now. But to ignore that progression from why things changed, I think misses the mark of just saying that it's just the rich because that is a huge piece of it. Correct, um, but I think it also, you know, it's about why did things change and how does uh, decentralization play a major factor in that? I don't even know what the term I would use.
1: And I think people get freaked out when you use terms like decentralization and use the term anarchist earlier. And I know that might freak a lot of people out. What we're aiming for is the. I use the word reimagining because that's what it is. And when I say that, uh, again, I don't mean starting from scratch. I'm saying a reimagining where you're taking the good parts of the things that have worked before and you're building on top of that. And that's the part of sustainability that I find is challenging. And that's why this book really opened my eyes to using what we have and what's there to, to build on top of, and that's I think that's um, the thing that i've been trying to pinpoint for a while now and how I live my life and how like what we 've been talking about starting this podcast yeah. the, the whole reimagining of taking what you have to, to build on top of is kind of how this podcast got started for us you know I, it's it 's just a real big highlight on the whole topic, like you said it 's topical for what 's going on in the country, but also with moving forward what we can do and how we can bring solutions about you have to take a look at what we have and what we've started with
0: yeah and i think like one of the challenges i have with a lot of philosophical discussions about like a a post-apocalyptic society or whatever you want to call it you know if you look at like a solar punk or any of those other type of genres hell yeah yeah like they're cool i'm not gonna disagree i think they, they have a lot to offer in their ability to reimagine a better world but we have to live within those confines, that reality of there are houses today that are built a certain way. We're not going to tear down every single house, tear down every downtown and start from scratch. It's just that's not going to happen. Right. And that that's okay, but we also have to figure out the ways that that's most efficiently done, most effectively done. And it's going to have to come down to some really massive amount of creativity. And that's something I think we'll probably talk about in the future is individualizing oh. that co- that concept and that practice in terms of how we reimagine what our homes look like how we re- reimagine what our communities look like you know one of the things that a little off topic but something that I think is forgotten a lot in America especially is that the idea of non intergenerational housing is an American Concept and mm-hmm. that we don't generally live with our parents as adults. Correct, uh, and you know you think Very about the big of, in Europe and, yeah, and, and other how, cultures, and around, how much yeah. resources are wasted because an elderly couple is staying in their house. They don't need the space, but it's where they spent their life. They don't want to leave. Right. I get that, and that you know that's fine in the sense of they have the right to stay where they are because that's where they're comfortable. But I think that highlights the fact that we've created a society that has allowed that to become a problem right um and i think that's a really po- important part of this process of thinking about how we reimagine the world right but i want to go back to kind of the process of how we got to where we are and i think that'll also open up a couple of different areas that i want to talk about with this book sure so unfortunately despite these massive progressive visions that we had in the early 20th century of a new america a few cities across the country are actually able to implement these ideas Further, by the late 50s, uh, the national highway system began replacing all rail transportation. Highway planners left out their scale of balance. Many small cities were less equipped to absorb the horrific consequences of downtown highway construction and the suburban retail it facilitated. Post-war urban renewal policies had similarly disproportionate consequences, whereas in large cities these developments wiped out entire neighborhoods, which was disastrous and unfair in itself. Smaller cities were altered in their entirety. While there were plenty of unintended consequences, there were plenty of nefarious intended consequences. As early as the 1930s, the Urban Land Institute intended to equip the Central Business District for anticipated economic expansion while clearing the urban core of blight. Using a two birds, one stone mentality, cities and states sought to route interstate expressways through slum neighborhoods using federal highway money to reclaim downtown real estate inner city slums could be cleared blacks removed to more distant second ghetto areas central business districts redeveloped and transportation woes were solved all at the same time and mostly at federal expense
1: can second ghetto be the name of our production label
0: <laughs> i think it should be because
1: that sounds pretty awesome yeah like relocated to second ghettos like we, we were living like the in first the first ge- we good. were living in the yeah <laughs> we were living in the ghetto and it was like it's too good for you <laughs> Yeah. We're go- we're gonna put a a highway, it's a, a well <laughs> a well deserved, well learned highway in here, and you you guys are gonna move to the second ghetto.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of uh, those airplanes that are like, oh, you hate economy? How about we just stand you all up like cattle? Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's literally a
0: cattle car. Yeah. Hopefully, this is recording because it's not it's showing the time going by on my screen right yeah. now, but it's not showing the little. Oh no! Thing. So. I've never had that happen before, but I've also never lost anything you want to check it? I'm afraid. And back to this book, you know, one of the things that she talks about is the whitewashing of culture that happens in suburban communities and in these small urban communities because of the dictation of metropolituses, what culture and what's acceptable, uh, all these different things about how to define uh, what it means to be, I guess, middle class, middle upper class at this time. Uh, as this is happening in the 40s and 50s and 60s. we well, use the word affluent. Yeah, That's let's a good go word. with affluent. Well, how she phrases is really interesting, so that's why I'm going to kind of read from what she said. Among the many problems with pushing growing metropolitan populations outward is that the suburb is without the discipline of rural occupations, yet also lacking the cultural resource of the central district. These communities lack any cultural capital and are also without any wealth capital as a collective whole. While many of its citizens may be of wealth, their wealth is inextricably tied to the metropolitan space. The inhabitants of these cities were taught to despise their local history, to avoid their local language, and their regional accent in favor of the colorless language of metropolitan journalism. Their cooking reflects suburban women's magazines. Their songs and dances, if they survive, are pushed to the side. To flourish, cities of smaller sizes must stop copying objectively from mass culture and draw instead from their own cultural traditions. And that can only happen if they remain decentralized in relation to one another, as well as in relation to large central cities, connected by transportation routes on a regional web respectful of environmental resources. Only by taking cultural, aesthetic, and technological matters in hand in its spirit of democratic self-determination, Could America's smaller cities conjure a true, diverse metropolitanism from the life-withering blur of machine-made uniformity serving the demands of the distant metropolis? So, yeah, there's a lot to unpack there.
1: Yeah, you just described the 95 corridor.
0: Yeah, so if you guys are not familiar with the East Coast, you can drive from Maine down to Florida, down 95, and you go through just about every major coastal city. We grew up right next to it. Still live pretty close to it. Elliot lives pretty close to it. Yep. And we were just in Maryland last fall. And we made a couple stops on the way. And uh, this, this feels pretty accurate. Where we grew up, there is a very distinct accent, which now has become part of the Bostonian accent, if, if there even is one. And I think everyone knows that if you have an accent, that usually is an indicator of some kind of lack of education, class, all these things that have translated that localization into some kind of degeneracy. You know, we were just talking, you were talking about catfish um, two minutes before we came on about how you love catfish. Love catfish. And, you know.
1: Fried catfish, to speak of. Not catching them. I don't noodle or anything like that. I just like eating them. And I, I, yeah, you don't have to scale catfish because they have, they have like skin, like shark skin. And it's a weird eel, like mudfish thing. But if you batter it and fry fry it, eat it with hot sauce. It's delicious. It's really good. I like it.
0: Yeah, and you know, one of the things about like catfish is that, well, not just catfish, but I'll use catfish as an example. Around here, 30 years ago, catfish weren't called catfish. Do you know this? I know you're from Georgia, so. What were they called? They're called hornpouts. What? You've never heard of hornpout?
1: Hornpout? Yeah. With a P?
0: Yes, with a P. Like, uh, there's no pop screen, so like P, like Paul? You do have a pop screen. I'm the one without one. <laughs> so, but yeah. No, their 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 regional term would be horn pout.
1: you fried horn pout yeah. sounds. I don't know like if a, that. I don't. Sad, know, I don't fish. know. I don't know if I would. If if I had to choose between fried catfish and fried horn pout. Yep. Am I saying you, that you right? You got it. You are a, fried catfish or fried horn pout? I would go with the catfish. Like wherever we're at, if they're frying animals, and I have to choose between catfish and horn pout. I just, I'm just gonna write that down. That sounds hilarious. I'm I can't gonna look that up. Never heard of that I've never heard of that.
0: Horn-pout. I didn't know they were the same thing until I was like twelve.
1: <laughs> Nobody's ever heard of it,
0: <laughs> like unless you're over hundred years like, old. Oh, I'm know, gonna, go I'm gonna she- ask my
1: wife. She's, she's about a hundred years old, and she's, very, they, they call her an old soul, and I just call her old because she just loves everything that old people love, and I feel like she would know what a horn pout is.
0: She might, but, uh, you know, I think the point is that. Like, that regional dialect has been lost. I mean, you grew up, not for the most part, but pretty much in in the Northeast, and you've never heard that I definitely grew up here. Never heard it. And, like, me and a lot of our friends used to go fishing. You fish more than anybody, (laughs) one other person that I know, who you used to fish with. Yeah, and um, I'm not even sure if he knows that term, uh, which I think is interesting. But, you know, like, it's August 14th right now when we're recording, and... Two weeks ago was huckleberry season around here. Yep, sure was. um So I was picking some and I was posting some, and you know I was reading a little bit about them because I them and I don't know a ton about them, so just doing a little bit of reading and um, I put a post up on our Instagram about the huckleberries I was picking, and it occurred to me that there's like seven different names of huckleberry depending where you live in the Northeast okay. or in uh, the north part of the country. Sure, and you know now it's like they'll just use the, the Latin name for species because there's so much diversity in what locals call them, but that's going by the wayside, uh, which is really sad in a lot of ways because it's a very big part of, not necessarily like a culture, but just uh, the localization of land and plants and animals, that they're being kind of absorbed by this huge monotonous thing that just defines everything as the same term. I and just
1: think it's people don't get out and talk about any of that shit anymore because nobody goes fishing for catfish or horn pouts. And nobody goes and gets huckleberries anymore because the thing about huckleberries, are not on shelves if people don't know. Huckleberries aren't on shelves because they don't have a shelf life. And you can't store huckleberries like in a bucket like if you put them in a bucket they'll turn to mush they don't have any texture to them so huckleberries are very sensitive and you either have to eat them or transport them very carefully and you can't do it a lot at a time so they're not great for you know mass production but they're they're can't good. Make eating. money they're good eating yeah good eating off the bush
0: and um yeah but you know that that idea of regionalization that that flavor of a community is and even when there is regional flavor it's so mass produced in a lot of ways you know you you go someplace that's supposed to have cultural flair you know you go into boston you go into the north end there's no italians that live in the north end right you know it's all a manufacturing it's that simulacra that manufactured image of an image of an image where there's no longer an original image anymore it's been wiped off the slate because there's been so many uh, decadent uses of it sure and uh, i think that's what, kind of what she's getting to at this point of this idea of cultural traditions being lost in that regional flavor
1: you know the name but the the flavor has changed it's changed to match the time for sure and that's true in uh, at least it's true in boston i won't say for a, a, a lot of major cities but at least in boston the the names remain the same but the flavor changes with the times
0: yeah and there's nothing wrong with change but the problem is when that change is that homogenous this is how it's called now in this entire country so therefore you don't deserve to have the capital of having your own community your own your own dialect uh, all of these things that kind of make you unique and we were talking about catfish because of the fact that you know that's something that people in areas like here ate a lot of back in the day because it was a food that was available and now it, it's not it's not mass produced so people don't eat it right so one of the other things that uh, I think was really interesting, and I think also highlights kind of the the awfulness of suburbia. And I'm actually one of the things I do really look forward to talking about is that suburbia doesn't have to necessarily be bad. And we're going to talk about some of my really cool ideas that you can do to restructure how small cities and urban and suburban spaces can be used in a really progressive way. Uh, and I think we talked about a little bit on the first episode when we had talked about you know, designing suburban sprawl, you know, creating dense clusters of housing and then creating massive landscapes that are collectively shared instead of everyone having their half acre front yard, half acre backyard. Instead, you could have a 500 acre, you know, food forest or whatever, a mm-hmm. lake and all these other things that no one individually could have, but collectively we can. Right. And um, she kind of refers to, but never actually explicitly talks about is this idea of agrohoods, hoods which is essentially exactly what it sounds like two words put together you know agricultural neighborhoods where you know whether it's front yards or backyards or whatever of a community is being shared from one common communal goal. blocks yeah even. communal blocks sure. you know, very much an idea of like a victory garden which we had actually were talking about before we started recording
1: uh, about yeah uh post-world war ii and during world war ii to help with rations if people don't know um they turned sections of neighborhoods and large cities into gardens communal gardens to help grow food to help sustain the people that were living at home because all of the other food production was going to those soldiers and and uh, workers who were fight, fighting in the war effort so to feed people at home they came up with the idea of communal gardens to grow in inner cities and in places that were having trouble importing food from you know outside the city and you know greater than 500 miles away
0: yeah and you know at the time steel and gas and all those other resources were of the utmost importance, so they kind of were not given to people, and they had to make do, and they did, and I think that highlights the fact that we are more resilient than we try to give ourselves credit for. It's very easy to say, like, look at what happened with COVID. Everyone went bought toilet paper because they don't know what to do, and they're completely useless, and they'll flounder, but I think this highlights the fact that it doesn't have to be that way, and that those those skills to survive are any and all of us we just have to figure out how to bring them out
1: and i will say the buy impulse has been strong during this pandemic Mm -hmm. uh people freaked out at the beginning and bought up all the toilet paper in existence and i think they had to cut down more trees to make more uh that's a fact you can look it up check me on it also i i think people had a problem I i won't say people i'm just gonna go ahead and own it i had a problem with amazon buying and I wasn't able to go out shopping in stores, and I wasn't getting my fix on buying things. And I found myself buying knickknacks and things on Amazon and like waiting for them to come just to get a little bit of satisfaction and gratification to know that I'm still working. And God God bless, I'm still working, and I still have a job. I'm still working doing this whole thing. I'm essential, in case you were wondering. I, I, I haven't been able to buy and purchase the goods that I need to like sustain myself and that's what I grew up and I know and that's what makes me feel comfortable and so in order to fix that I found myself clicking that buy button and then we started doing the podcast you know a week or two after that and I found (laughs) that instead of just thinking about a better way I could actually do it so we started the podcast and now hopefully this is going to open me up to a better way of reimagining the way I live my life so I don't have to panic when a pandemic happens I can actually just go out in my garden and make salsa.
0: There you go. Just working on getting you some ducks.
1: Yeah, duck. Wait, duck salsa.
0: <laughs> I mean, not for the salsa. Oh, but, you, you know. mean
1: your ducks?
0: Yeah, like they're cool.
1: He just got ducks. They're awesome.
0: We got new ducks. We got. They,
1: they wiggle their duck tails. And we
0: got six new ducks. They're amazing. Last week, so the flock is expanding. It's very exciting. Good flock times. you. Yeah, I just had to say it. Had to be said. So yeah, we just talked a little bit about like that concept of agrohoods and the fact that we can reimagine these suburban spaces in a way that's really useful instead of just being you know this green monoculture that costs a lot of money to keep up and destroys the planet even though this book is focused primarily on that urban space it does dip into the rural in terms of how to decentralize essentially because it acknowledges that we need to localize our food systems and only in smaller cities is is this sustainable The dynamic of the urban and the rural reflects the symbiotic nature of both the city and the country, that each needs each other, despite the best efforts of both, to stand at the forefront of the dichotomy. Further, the book highlights the need to develop cohesive plans in our urban redevelopment, which divide urban spaces into sects of space for dense residential, commercial, and industrial use, as well as suburban residential, but with the point to highlight that most urban cities sit on some of the most fertile soils in the world, which is why they were developed in the first place sprawling out from these core centers goes directly in the face of sustainability and that we are wasting precious topsoil to concrete and killing the life force within the soil. Further, Tumber posits that despite what might seem like to be a reclamation of drab uniformity in the name of sustainability, each transect grade requires customized zoning and building codes, what she calls form-based codes devised to reflect the architectural, economic, and natural histories of particular places, as well as to suit the idiosyncrasies of local conditions. These spaces require compact, walkable streetscapes with convenient public transit with provisions for mixed-use buildings constructed on traditional scales for multiple activities. A lot of this concept of localizing building code and localizing efficiency by creating walkable, sustainable residential, commercial, industrial zones that are all localized and not like there's a major downtown. But
1: She sums up as form based codes. Yeah.
0: What we're talking about is generally what we saw in the natural development of pre-capitalist societies. When you look at things like Mm city-states across southern Europe, most cities remain small, dense, and the outer ring was firmly partitioned from agricultural zones, and the outer ring was primarily residential. In the United States, the Euclid zoning, a Supreme Court case in the 1920s, which chopped up the American landscape during the housing expansion after World War II, in order to remove housing from the pollution of the industrialized uh, cores of cities, as though that was the solution, not, the, not reducing the pollution itself, right. provided the framework f- uh, for the auto-dependent suburban tract, office, and mall developments outside of the confines of the urban space.
1: Right. So moving them outside of the cities, you have to look at it as a two-way street, which is which it was. You're moving them away from the cities and, wa- and away from the factories in the inner cities to the agricultural farmland that's outside the cities which became the suburbs
0: yeah and in the same process trying to segregate pollution and things like that from people to make them healthier you're actually making it worse because you're forcing them to drive cars and that can only happen in major urban spaces it won't happen in smaller these older style cities like what we're talking about particularly in this book
1: so the 95 corridor
0: yeah pretty much it's Um, coming full circle yeah we're living the dream is really what it comes down to. We're doing it. Um, so I think this highlights a couple of things, particularly, I think, again, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of the mall uh, and the sub, that suburban strip mall and kind of that, what, what happens to that in a, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting subject because in the United States, we have more square feet dedicated to retail space per capita than anywhere else in the world and it's not even close i don't have the stats in front of me that makes sense well we spend a lot but I that's mean- what
1: i just said i literally <laughs> went on amazon because i wasn't buying anything it hadn't bu- i hadn't bought anything that wasn't food and over like three and a half was like going on like four weeks and i went on amazon and i bought this is what i bought. This is no bullshit i bought egg rings to make like eggs a perfect circle to fit on my english muffin Because I wanted to egg McMuffin. I wanted to make them at home. So I spent $6.20. And I I felt a compulsion, like a need to do it. Only because I hadn't bought anything. What kind of bullshit is that?
0: I bought hand towels. Is there fluoride (laughs) in the water?
1: Like, what is that?
0: Yeah, I don't know. But I think it does highlight the fact that even just post-COVID, those spaces are going to be left. And obviously... I'm a tax accountant, so I I don't think those properties are going to go for sale anytime soon because it's going to be a huge write-off for a lot of people for a long time. But I do think it does highlight the fact that You know, in a capitalist society, the resources are not applied there in a way that is beneficial for the community, but rather an outside investor, whether it's through a REIT, which is essentially an investment club that's held on the stock market, Mm -hmm. or whether it is small scale, you know, bougie type investors. um, What they do is not necessarily better for the community, but what's better for them, you know, those spaces are massive open spaces, and I think they offer some really unique opportunities in the fact that they already exist and can give us certain things that we otherwise wouldn't have.
1: Absolutely, like free skate parks for everybody and places for high school kids to smoke weed. Cuz yeah. that's going to stop crime and it's going to give a place for people to go. That's what I needed in high school. We yeah. didn't have that. So, <laughs> more skate parks and more places to smoke weed for high school kids.
0: Yeah, and like, you know, that idea of use, you know, rezoning there's no place, you think about it realistically, if you want to go out with your friends, where can you go that doesn't cost money? Nowhere.
1: Jail. You can go to jail <laughs> for free, but to get out, it costs you money.
0: Oh, yeah, but I mean, no, chances of you guys well, going together.
1: That's the system. Yeah, no. Yeah. You can't. <laughs> is there a buddy system in jail? I don't know. I mean, been. there is, but. Is there? How does that work? Yeah. You
0: know, I think it highlights the fact there's resources available. And there's an extensive expense, both economically and ecologically, for this space, whether, you know, it's being used for retail or it's being set vacant in terms of what we can do with it. Um, Making public ownership spaces, like you're saying, like skate parks for kids, things like that.
1: Just the idea of public gardens, and when you say that, not just like a park or a place where you can go to walk, but like a place that you can walk through and potentially, you know... Pick fruits and greens and things to eat for the next two days while you go home. So, you just took a nice walk through the park. You needed to get out, stretch your legs a little bit, and maybe just enjoy the day and you didn't have anywhere to go. Yeah. And you can go and walk and then go home with, you know, a bounty that you're allotted to for, you know, whatever, once a week or once every three days or, or whatever it is. That sounds like something that I would do. And it sounds like a way to get out that doesn't cost any money. I put tax dollars into it and went to work. So, that's. That's called mine. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'd be okay with that.
0: Yeah, and I think the idea, I mean, I think about the mall near where we lived. And, uh, you know, it's this three-story mall with this giant glass atrium. The whole thing is lit up by the sun, but it's enclosed. But it's pretty much, for all intents and purposes at this point, vacant or almost vacant. It's pretty, it feels very sterile. In the sense that there doesn't seem to be a lot of activity going on there anymore. Yeah, and, I don't. You we know, should go.
1: We should make a field trip to the mall. No, that would be interesting. I, I would go.
0: Hot Topics probably still looking for me. I want
1: to go get some umi chicken, dude.
0: I, that was definitely
1: yeah. not. It was, it was horn pout. It was what it was. It was fried horn pout.
0: You're welcome for that little nomenclature. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, I mean, like that space, you think about it realistically. Like you've got this giant insulated space with natural light that's i don't know that square footage must be close to a million square feet yeah what you could do with that in terms of like agricultural production even with some use of led lights or something like that i mean we were talking about like microgreens farming earlier again Mm -hmm. before this podcast and like what you can do in your basement in terms of production you know that type of scale what can be produced especially you start talking about you have three stories of growth for trees and things like that sure you can grow local avocados lemons whatever you don't need to you know use any grid heat to keep that thing going Um, and you can create your own ecosystem essentially in there and i think that's something that's amazing and you know a really great use of space that otherwise is being used to what sell more shirts that you can buy on amazon like great sure
1: i think the the most people that go to the mall now are um, older folks who are like sketchers Like shape ups And they actually use the mall As a climate controlled walking track Yeah and, and they walk around it And that goes back That's, to the
0: first idea you had About yeah. the use of public space For those vacant spaces or, Exactly You know just getting rid of These wasted You know again How many fucking shake shacks do you need Or whatever Jersey Mike Orange or Julius Yeah all that
1: Auntie shape. Annie's Pacific Sunwear, Hot Topic Yeah
0: like and How much of it do you need What we can see here is that there's a lot of space as long as you're willing to reimagine how it can be used. And I think what we're going to see in the next coming years is a lot of office space that's going to have to be retooled in a lot of ways to be more functional and more useful in a lot of ways. Because if you go downtown Boston, all those high-rises that cost $200 a square foot to rent, why is anyone going to pay that anymore Mm -hmm. if you don't need to? What's going to happen to all of it?
1: And if we even change those form-based codes to have, I don't know. I don't know how zoning works, really, because I'm not a lawyer. I do know that they zone school school zones and industrial zones separately. But in an urban situation where space is limited, why can't a high-rise have a school in some of the floors and like office space and others, especially if a portion of that is unused on top of classrooms being too full as they are?
0: Yeah, I think that's something that's going to have to, you know, we're going to have to come to terms with that. If we look at Boston, there was a meme a few years back that was going around of, like, welcome to Boston, fuck you, and you know, welcome to New York, and it's, like, all squarely lines. Oh, that, that was the like, intersections. Yeah. Of yeah. And so it just in, showed, like, how screwed up Boston is In
1: Boston, this is legit, Boston is the city that started America. You're welcome. They paved, <laughs> they paved all of the, basically, the roads that people would, take their herd animals to, to graze on Boston commons. They would take side streets and roundabout ways to get to the commons. And it made like a sort of spiral circle, some sort of shape that made sense that flowed with the traffic of the day. And instead of making a grid like every other city that was planned and had urban planning in mind, they just paved, you know, local paths. And that's how Boston is now. And so when you're driving through Boston, you know, Going 30, music up, GPS is on. You're looking for an address and it says turn in 500 feet. And then everywhere you go, it says you can't turn right, you can't go straight, and you can't turn left. And you're at an intersection and you have to do something and you don't know where you are. You're in Boston. And no matter what you do, you're going to you end up on a bridge. Time. You're going to end up on a bridge going to Cambridge. It doesn't matter where you turn, you're just going to end up on a bridge going to Cambridge.
0: Yeah, pretty accurate. So, you know, Boston, I think, is a really good highlight of the fact that eventually communities figure out that they need to codify um, how to do things. And sometimes too late in the case of Boston. They're like, oh, shit, everything's fucked up. We need to uh, try to make sense of this. And they just didn't. But, nope. <laughs> but I, I think with the pressure, you know, in terms of, I guess, 2020, uh, the pressure of how much economic damage is going to be from uh, the fallout of people working from home. I think that's going to push various communities to have to figure out a way to be more accessible uh, in rezoning things. You know, I think about like where my parents live now and every house has to have 200 feet of frontage to be considered a buildable lot. Mm -hmm. And it just turned a farm community into sprawl. You know, all it's going to take is for gas to get cut off for that to be, oh, this is not sustainable. Which brings me to the the next section that I kind of want to talk about, which is the countryside. Mm -hmm. So we talked about how the urban and the country space, part of what makes small cities work so well is the fact that they're so accessible to one another. And now it's suburbs. And she interviews a bunch of folks about this and kind of how they all try to challenge this idea of allowing the suburbs to come in through, you know, really rich farmland is that there There needs to be some kind of control in in this conversation and not let the capitalists just use their money to buy out small parcels of land or large parcels of land for very cheap and then let the town or communities that they can buy off the politicians put in these major infrastructure upgrades to then create all this newly zoned, now commercial and residential space be used and you know, suddenly double and triple in value. Right. One of the things that she talks about is um, when we're talking about real country, you see primarily monocultures primarily soybean and cor- uh, corn and you know that's definitely something that we could talk about in terms of how much of a fucking mess that is and
1: monoculture I think, yeah I've heard and that I, term about a thousand times since uh, we started this podcast and everything like that but it just just you. the just the word it yeah i monoculture it it, it it sends a shiver up my spine. That It gets that little tickle. I don't like it. Monoculture. It's just yeah. such a bad word to me now.
0: Yeah, and if you listen to the first couple episodes, you know why it's such a bad word. Um, so we could talk about that. I kind of want to, but I don't think there's enough beer we'll in the house. We'll get there. We'll get so there. So we'll, we'll do it another there, day. Andy. We'll get there. But um, I think what it does is highlight the fact that even if there is today in 2020, small cities that exist that you can say, yes, this is a potential spot for a sustainable city where we can retool the infrastructure that's in place to update energy codes, relocalize various manufacturing things that we need in our day-to-day use. If they're still surrounded by that country sprawl that's monoculture, they're still not producing enough or producing the correct food that they need. And uh, she does interview a couple folks that are actually more traditional. Well, not traditional, but more uh, market type gardeners. Some that are focused on things like silvopasture, some of the stuff that I'm really into. So I thought that was kind of cool, mm-hmm. and how they can talk about maximizing production in order to localize food even further. Mm-hmm. Silvopasture. I just
1: you, you just referenced it. We were talking about it earlier, and that's uh, with the animals grazing uh is that with animals grazing the trees or is that with the
0: silvo pastures animals grazing under forest canopy um animals grazing
1: okay so that's the one for the fruit trees and and things like that that uh, is yeah, the one that you, you want so, sorry i'm getting sidetracked i no, just you you mentioned it it just reminded me earlier i wanted i wanted to remember it because i wanted to look it up
0: <laughs> don't worry i got plenty of resources i'm there sure you so do many books. that's why we're here <laughs> um so there was one thing I thought that was really interesting, in particular in this subject area of localizing food and how that impacts, you know, energy efficiency, uh, resiliency in particular. Our focus is on you know if shit falls south, you know this is an exercise in figuring out how we would want to rebuild the world around us. So I just want to bring up this idea. So she brings up this study in particular that took place by uh, the Manhattan Borough, which is a. I guess a think tank type research group or whatever, they funded a study regarding localizing food sources and in 2010 this study suggested that their goal for the city of New York sources a substantial portion of its food within 200 miles out. And this is the pie in the sky proposition. Like, let that settle in, that 200 miles of farmland uh, to provide a substantial portion, whatever that means, whether that means more than 50%, 90%, I don't know, it didn't explain. that. That is a pie in the sky idea that 50% Fifty percent or more, let's say, of their food is provided from within two hundred miles. I mean, you think about that in terms of what if our uh, resources for oil or gas falls apart? How sustainable that really is when we're trying to say that's that's our goal, not like where we are today, but the goal. And I think that speaks to the fact that like we're n- in nowhere equipped to deal with fallout if something does happen and our sure. infrastructure falls apart. When I think about how far
1: avocado. Like people love avocados. I don't. I still to this day don't know what avocado toast is, but that's a thing. But people love them. But think about how far an avocado travels. Like, we live on the east coast, and an avocado travels damn near cross country to get to us. When think about having the infrastructure and a place to grow two two hundred miles outside of a major city where you could have you know locally grown avocados.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's crazy, uh, and you know that brings up a good point though that. And this is again. This is like a classic, like fucking, capitalist situation where we we've created this locavore type movement for our food, and everyone's like, okay, I want to go buy at a farmer's market, and farmer's markets are expensive because growing food is fucking expensive. Like it just it is, especially if you want good quality stuff. Uh, It's just that that is what it is. And, you know, that's a whole other conversation about how inflation and discretionary income over the last 50 years has gone sideways for
1: the markets where fresh foods are are expensive.
0: Yeah. And that's a piece of it is that if you're valuing something like local food, it's probably because you're not in an area where it's accessible. Even then further puts strains on accessibility and pricing.
1: There is no grocery stores in the second ghetto.
0: Probably, yeah, that's fair. So going back to my point about one of the challenges now that we've created with this whole local war movement is that um, many of the farmers can be local when you go there, but oftentimes the cheaper produce is at the market, which generates the bulk of the sales that they get through a wholesaler or a middleman who's buying bulk and then reselling with the illusion of being local, right. and often the same exact farm as what you'd see in the local grocery store. So for us, uh, when I lived in Boston and I'm going to Faneuil Hall at their farmers market, it was it was that you would buy you could buy like a case of grapes and it had like whatever brand that from California and it was Boston. the same thing that you get at a stop and shop except usually there you could buy stuff really cheap right because they were trying to get rid of it before it spoiled right which was great if you're like making wine or whatever but like just that idea that they had that local produce Mm -hmm. put right beside things like that and the only way you would know the difference is if you use a little bit of critical thinking about the the grapes grow here in april no right then it's not local
1: i think actually Catherine tunbert touches on that book as well when she talks about local farmer markets um and how a lot of them have rules where you can only sell what is locally grown some farmers markets have the the title farmers markets but you can actually buy produce from anywhere from any wholesaler and go there and sell that which is basically what people do and that's how you find grapes that you could find at stop and shop in your local grocery store at local farmers markets
0: yeah i mean it really shouldn't be surprising that capitalists continue to exploit every venue available it's a market it has the word market in it and that's what (laughs) but uh, you know it really highlights the inability of there to be any real change without um, challenging the weight of the global capitalist system. At the end of the day, all of these piecemeal suggestions from politicians on the left and the right, they're, they're ineffective. And at this point... Burn it down. Yeah, burn it down, be prepared for the aftermath because there's no solving it. So yeah, I think this highlights our ability to retool our cities in urban spaces. Suburbia so can be retooled into these ideas of agri- agri-hoods, uh, agricultural neighborhoods where we can take advantage of the exquisite topsoil that was put down for your grass and use it into a public utility to grow food locally. If, for example, the average suburban front yard is a quarter of an acre, four front yards is an acre. And
1: Four front yards. Yeah. That's you and all the neighbors touching you. Yeah. And I think the one thing that we didn't touch about at the beginning of this episode, going looking back on it in hindsight, or we could just edit it in, depends on how we do it. You
0: vastly um, overvalue my editing skills.
1: <laughs> yeah, edit everything, edit I my can't. voice out, make it have more bass in it. Like the, I want to sound like Allstate, like the Allstate guy. <laughs> yeah, I can't do that. You can't, all right, well, what are you good for? And you uh, f- <laughs> so we didn't talk about the the sense of community and the difference between those in urban populations and in rural. Uh, settings where in an urban population there are people who have lived in apartment buildings for years three years and they've seen their neighbors that they have the same schedule with but they could live next door to somebody and they've never seen or spoke to them ever in a million years they can never imagine asking them for you know a cup of sugar let alone like do you have some cucumbers i could borrow until mine come in next next tuesday you know what i mean the urban setting and the rural setting, I think there's a sense of community that is missing. And I think that that's what makes this whole thing work, is when you said, you know, four front yards makes an acre, that involves you and your neighbors, everybody has their little parcel of land. But that involves you, you know, sort of relying on them and building a sense of community where you can help each other out. So when times get tough, you don't have to Look for somebody to come from 600 miles away with a truck of saviors, refrigerated savior in it. You yeah. can just ask your neighbor for a little bit of help, which they should be glad to do.
0: Yeah, and I think you know, that's part of that inherent contradiction of capitalism that we, we're individualists. But, at the end of the day
1: i will, I won't blame capitalism for it. I'll blame the division between urban and rural culture, that subdivision, that suburban, not quite rural mindset. The people who are in the suburbs are will we'll use the word affluent. I don't think that they have too much dignity to ask people for help, and i don't I think that's something that people need to get over with the whole buy mentality like I did. I could have asked somebody to make me a coffee can. Uh, not coffee can I'm sorry uh, tin can. Soap, su- soup can egg ring to make my eggs perfect fucking circles, so I can put them on my English muffin and have an egg egg McMuffin sandwich when I want so I don't have to go to McDonald's and buy one
0: but how would Instagram know how pretty it is without it
1: listen Instagram can you guys can check out our Instagram and see what I think about that I'm not going to say anything else about that I don't want to <laughs> get too vulgar here
0: yeah so but yeah I mean I, I think you're 100% right we are a communal species we are meant to be interconnected and i think that contradicts the idea of individuality that is required in our society today and that's why that idea of agrihood is really uh, a challenge for a lot of people because of concept of land ownership which you know, you can make the case that even in our society, we don't own land. The government does. We just pay a tax to not every get every goddamn off of it. year, even
1: though we yeah. bought it and yeah. own the deed to it. We'll still we'll still pay for
0: it because it's not real. It's not real. Uh, so, in my example, I talked about four front yards in a typical suburban neighborhood is an acre. An acre of food can, or an acre of land can grow a couple people's worth of food. It can feed a, a good farmer, a regenerative farmer, can grow probably close to you know three or four people's food on an acre you could literally have an entire neighborhood almost self-sustaining and i think that's sure it might not look as pretty to some people but i think it highlights the fact that we can do this it's just whether or not we're willing to create community again to make it happen
1: i i think people are afraid when when people talk about growing food i think people are afraid of nobody wants to be a a farmer to grow their own food but with infrastructure and innovation with technology and with the practices that we know works we can use the space that we have with little input and a little bit of attention each and every day and you can have those things it doesn't it doesn't take as much work as people would think that it does you can still hold down a full-time job and still have these things
0: yeah especially if you do something like that you know high intensive grazing system that we had talked about in one of the episodes if you
1: can take care of you know walking a dog and and feeding an animal every day you can you can have these things Is what i'm trying to say
0: we were talking about my ducks and you're asking me how much work they were and i said you let them out and then at night you let them back in and they have their little ponds and they have food. I'll throw food in every couple days and that's it. Speaking of which I hope my wa- wife let the chickens in. Did she say that?
1: I don't think she I don't think she lets chickens in. Cool.
0: The We're gonna day. have to
1: go get some chickens.
0: And ducks. And duck. But yeah, it's it's really not that much work and I'm gonna go flock myself. Yeah. Welcome to the whole <laughs> flocking family. Duck uh, Duck. Yeah. Uh <laughs> So one last thing I think that got brought up that I think is kind of worth talking about is agricultural urbanism, uh, which um, she talks to someone named Vicki Rainey, who calls it popcorn farming, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of interesting and also kind of bougie, uh, but also reminded me of when I was in Raleigh, what you used to see a lot about in that way, where mm-hmm. there's a lot of new development, and it's kind of like hippie lib kind of community where it's like people
1: had money to move out to the sticks and that's yeah. where they
0: ended up and they didn't they wanted to do sustainable bullshit essentially that is more about you know symbolic
1: it's totally fine to feel good about yourself and making, making things better
0: it was the tesla before tesla
1: Ooh, it had a frunk which is a front trunk it also had a horny pout
0: <laughs> you're not gonna let that go are no,
1: you no I'm gonna say that a whole bunch tonight
0: This woman, Vicki Rainey, pioneered a new style of housing development that integrated agriculture and ecological preservation into its design. In 1992, she built her first conservation community, which included an organic farm and nature conservancy within its borders. The community is named Prairie Crossing and sits 40 miles northwest of Chicago. The concept was to build the same amount of houses on a piece of land as a traditional suburban tract but to cluster them at higher density levels to allow for more free land for residents to enjoy. If you listen to the first episode here on climate change, I brought up this to discuss more sustainable ways to develop new communities while supporting nature. Actually, I never heard of this before I wrote that episode. So it's kind of interesting when this came up in the book. Or maybe it was just buried in my head because I read this like 10 years ago. Uh, This development in particular houses almost 400 homes, are designed to be eco friendly, have a wind turbine on the property, its own school, swale based stormwater filtration system that empties into a lake, has a 40 acre organic farm, community garden space, as well as 10 miles of biking and hiking trails. There's plenty more to talk about, and you could make the case that this type of suburb exists as a massive virtue signal for the progressive rich, as housing is significantly more expensive to offset the overhead of designing and building in this capacity. But I think it provides a model of what can be done, which is important as a concept in place as anything else. And I think, considering the purpose of this podcast, acknowledging failures and successes, and even if I think they are virtue signaling, um, the fact that someone actually did what I said should be done is sure. pretty cool. You know, we can actually ima- we're talking about imagining how we want the future to look like, and somebody actually went out and did it. And it might be a bougie bitch that did it, but at the end of the day, she did it.
1: I th- well, I think she went out and had the idea. She went out and had the idea and did it. And I think at the time and where it's located, I think it drew that, uh, again, that affluent crowd, the people that had the money to do it. And that, I think that's where you, you're acquainted, not coining the term, but using the term virtue signaling. It's the people that wanted to change the way that they were living. And instead of changing their lifestyle, they just went ahead and paid for it yeah um there's there's the 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 right sentiment is there but i would definitely like as a takeaway to take away the design and look at how that was done and to see that you can do that and to see how densely packed the houses really were and to see if you could do that you know in an urban setting if you can do that in a suburban setting yeah And see how many see how many places you can do that and where you could take that model
0: yeah and i mean you think about like you're just saying like how you apply it to an urban setting look at some place like Detroit where they're tearing down massive neighborhoods, massive
1: neighborhood. They're, they're burning down houses yeah. because they're not tearing them down ha- fast enough. Yeah. That's what people and, are doing in neighborhoods. And
0: you know, they still have an urban space, but if you design it in a way that mimics kind of what she's done, uh, and you know, really takes advantage of that space or
1: mimics the forestry cycle
0: or mimics the forestry cycle. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be very cool. Let's
1: talk yeah. about that in a later episode. <laughs> or did we already talk about that? I yeah. listened to it. It was a good episode. You should listen to it. <laughs>
0: Actually, it's kind of interesting. I'm just skimming through my notes at the end of this that I put together. And the commercial shopping space per person stat I have actually in my notes. You looked it, it up. No, I, well, I did back then, yes. In case you're wondering if I'm a creature of habit. <laughs> the United States allots almost 20 square feet of commercial shopping space per person compared to just two square feet in Europe. So we use 10 times more square feet per person.
1: So that's like having like your own shelf space in a store to go shopping like about personally versus versus having your own like storage unit to go shopping in every week yeah so think about having your own like cubby hole space on a shelf and that's your items to like shop from versus having your own you know self-storage you store four by five storage unit to go shopping in that's 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 the that's the comparison
0: there yeah so i know that's totally off topic from what we were just talking about but I just happened to find it. thought you guys would appreciate it. Just edit it in. No. <laughs> that seems like a lot of work. It
1: sounds do awesome. That. Let's do it this weekend. I'll do it tonight. Okay. Show me how to do it.
0: I, it sounds like it. I'll it's do it. It's awful. I'll help. Um, I'm not going to help. No. I know. So, yeah, we were talking about this idea of like reappropriating her design style in a sustainable way in that, at the very least, it it gives us a model of what can be done, which is in its own right, like pretty cool. The whole point of this is that we need to think about the conditions that we inherit, which I think is really important to consider and kind of why we started the the whole show the way we did because. Inherit and leave behind. Yeah. We're inheriting the conditions of late capitalism, destroying the planet. And we have to, you know, use the tools that are available to us. And I, and infrastructure and infrastructure. The idea isn't that, Oh, capitalism collapses next week we're not going to go move out to the woods and start building all over again i am i mean i i'm trying right now in my backyard you have that's... an or
1: you have free trees planted i have canned beans and like seven bullets
0: that's it yes I'm, I'm, I'm a prepper y- you're gonna have i to...
1: read the i read the prepping list
0: is it seven bullets
1: yeah seven it's like john wick
0: haven't seen it <laughs> sorry I seven,
1: don't. it's like a million dollars a bullet. He had like a seven million dollar bounty on his head. Oh,
0: uh, yeah. Yeah. I should I'm watch like that.
1: <laughs> I'm like a black John Wick.
0: There you go.
1: Uh, oh, edit that in. That sounds good.
0: I'm a black John Wick. I'm a black John. I'm, I'm a white John yes. Wick.
1: Every Wick that I've seen is starts white, and then you set it on fire, and it ends up black. Like me. I'm a philosopher. Super deep. That's deep. <laughs> Still waters run deep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the point is, I guess, that between our tax code design, our corporate overlords, our suburban sprawl growth, many of the spaces that were designed to be short-term profit centers with zero intention of using them for an extended period of time are now permanent, and we have to live with the consequences. I was actually reading a really good article, and it's totally irrelevant to this, but I want to bring it up anyway. Bring it up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That the reason why people like everyone likes to like they're the big case right now is like is people leave places like California for Texas or around here, which the they're Northeast. doing that because they made terrible laws and they don't well, like it. That that is a piece, but that, a lot of people. It's a big piece. Well, a lot of people will go down and they're like, well, look at how cheap taxes are here, like local tax, and the this whole article
1: directly, directly related. But go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. Sort, sort of. Go ahead.
0: Because, I mean, a piece of that goes to things that are whatever. Anyways, go ahead, go, so, ahead, go yeah, ahead. The point yeah. that I'm getting to is that this article makes the case that the reason w- why those taxes are low is because they haven't fully appreci- or accounted for the cost of maintenance and replacement of uh, their infrastructure. Fair so, enough. So, like, you think about, like, a condo. Like every time, everyone that moves into a brand new condo, the condo fees are not that bad. And then you hit year ten or something, and suddenly everything fucking doubles. Yeah, because they didn't really uh, appropriate the amount of costs. Right. They they backload all the costs.
1: To see that in action, just look at the city of Houston. Yeah. How it grows and dies every ten years, like clockwork. Yeah. It's the same thing. They don't account for the growth of the new people coming in. Yeah. The city dies, and it happens
0: every every ten years. So, like around here, you know. With the many, many flaws of Massachusetts, there's nothing new anymore. So there's no uh, backloading of those tax costs for the most part. I mean, there's new, you know, they tear down a building and put up a bigger building or whatever. But for for all intents and purposes, like, that's not a huge problem here, whereas the rest of the country it is. And I think that really highlights our inability as a species to think long term, even when it's someone's job to be that person that thinks long term. And chances are that also there's a bunch of political implications involved with that, that nobody wants to be the guy that says, hey, we're building all these new neighborhoods and uh, we're not paying nearly enough taxes in the long term. Like, people just don't give a shit. Just ask the boomers. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the point is, to get back to where I was going, is that we've built a lot of things in this country and globally with no real long-term thought process. The idea of long-term sustainability and understanding the contextuality of how do these things implicate future generations into various problems is not really considered successfully. So, you know, we talked about the mall near us that we grew up near, uh, and nearly 80% of malls today are considered at risk for foreclosure. Generally malls last about 30 to 50 years and they started building in the seventies. Most of the malls were started in the Northeast. So we're obviously facing the most severe part of that blunt. Attempts have been made to revamp the utility of malls because at the end of the day you have this giant facility and for some reason they keep building new stores despite there being empty malls. Mm -hmm. They've tried to make them into mixed use buildings and things like that, but usually they get caught up in red tape or people just refuse to acknowledge that they've changed. Um, From foreign
1: based codes, they get caught up in red tape. You can't rezone or repurpose a building that's already been built for a specific purpose. Yeah.
0: And, you know, it's so funny. America is like the asterisk nation or the loophole nation. Like, we will do everything we can to get as close to crossing that line without ever doing it. And I feel like COVID really has highlighted this. Mm-hmm. Like, you see all these people walking around, and they're technically wearing a mask, but, like, they cut a hole in it. Sure. And it's like, well, technically, I'm wearing a mask. And it's like, well, you, you defeated the intent of the mask. Like, if you're not using it for the right purposes, who gives a shit? You followed the technical legal requirement. This kind of brings up that point that, you know, we get caught up in this red tape about the usage of facilities, because usually it comes down to profiteering Mm -hmm. um, instead of, you know, really creating mixed use or utilitarian spaces for the public. But it gets difficult because people want to make money on it. Fortunately for us, I guess, in terms of how we're reimagining the future, this won't be a problem because all those governments will be gone. Uh, (laughs) Burn them down. So, one of the things she brings up, too, when it comes to these spaces, and we kind of talked about it, is using them as farms. In her case, she talks about hydroponics farms, uh, which, personally, I don't have a ton of experience with, but it is, uh, like, really interesting, and I would love to, like, see a model of that. I think that... A hydroponics re- farm? Like, on a, in a mall. Like a in re- a mall. A reappropriated mall. I think that'd be pretty fucking cool.
1: I think that'd be cool.
0: In my opinion, the biggest challenge, uh, and this book brings it up uh, in particular... And I think it really relates to what we're talking about, particularly in the podcast, is that we're not here to tear down half a city and rebuild it or relocating roads, ripping down suburban tracks to reappropriate that farmland. This exercise that we're doing is to use our knowledge and the resources around us to best reutilize those facilities available to us. And for many of us, this is just poorly laid out space. Suburban tracks are highly dependent on fossil fuels to access things like food, energy, raw materials, and refined materials and at the end of the day like if we're talking about a post collapse let's say a situation or it just you know i think about robert evans and uh, it could happen here about the idea of the government maybe losing control of localized areas and those areas have to fend for themselves mm-hmm. and in my own opinion and i think this is something we'll probably talk about in a future episode is how that fallout takes place Do things just get cut off or they're going to be continued withdrawn access to Mm -hmm. things? And I think in some of the intro that uh, the, I don't know what you want to call it, the short story thing that um, has been opening up the first few episodes kind of highlights that idea of that things don't just turn off overnight. Which I think is a really big cliche for the prepper community that this idea of like, one day you snap your fingers and there's no power, there's no gas, there's no food. Right. And suddenly you're just like eating canned beans over a kerosene. With with seven bullets. Yeah. Yeah, that's me. With seven bullets. Yeah, that's it. And that's just not the world we live in. Nope. And, you know, I think if we try to imagine a pragmatic sense of what it means to be prepared Mm -hmm. and what we're really realistically looking at in terms of, say, the next 15 years... You know, and you could make the you could make a very good case for the next fifteen weeks. Sure, twenty twenty is looking that way. Yeah, twenty twenty is a fucking wild ride. But it, just the idea that I think the the really great thing about this book is she offers the insight and the the knowledge to approach the situation in a way that we can say we don't need to start from scratch. We right. have resources available and we can look to the past to see the future, which I think is something that's very cliche, but also I think in this context is really valuable.
1: I think that you used the word a oh, um, moment ago, but using the word utilitarian really comes into play. And utilitarian and sustainab- sustainable are two words that really resonate with me because everything that happens in a sustainable system has a utilitarian purpose to it, and the more purpose you can apply to each part of that is going to make it more sustainable and more versatile for things. And I think the way that we've been living has really been highlighted with the pandemic, where I think food, clean water, and shelter are basic human needs that everybody needs to survive. And I think we can supply ourselves with those things without relying so much on that buying power that we go to work every day for. And that's something that really opened my eyes at the beginning of 2020 and made me want to change. I don't want to mow my lawn anymore. I want to figure out a way to use the space that I've worked hard for and use it to supplement and make my life, you know, better. Ducks. And, and Ducks. D- I need ducks, ducks, yes. I need ducks and goats, apparently. Ducks. And I need silvo pasture culture.
0: 50 percent there
1: yeah i'm working on it i'm working on it he's giving me a lot of information to read so i'm working on it
0: i'm the farmer guy he's the everything else guy
1: also i'm pretty sure everybody in my family grew watermelons so
0: way to be a stereotype
1: we'll we'll see hey i'm from georgia what do you want from me man what do you want from me
0: It's all right i'm an italian so we got figs i got a lot of figs i,
1: I know what you call eggplants or <laughs> whatever <laughs> Can't take this guy anywhere. Such a racist. It's awesome. I love it.
0: (laughs) Oh, I think this cuts it up. So small, gritty, and green. Catherine Tumber. Catherine Tumber, thank you. She's awesome. Great book. Good read. She's got a bunch of really good uh, essays that I think we might, if this does well, we might uh, try to get her on to talk about some of the newer stuff she's been doing, which has been building on this and. She's got a lot of criticism for the Green New Deal, which is very valid. So I definitely want to talk to her about that in the future if you guys enjoy this.
1: We'll try to get her on here. Again, that's Small, Greedy, and Green by Catherine Tumber. And uh, we also made a short reference to Robert Evans, and um, It Could Happen Here. And that's a podcast that heavily influenced me on, on getting this one started. And uh, um, I... I would highly recommend going to check that out and after you listen to that come back and listen to our episodes again and then tell all your friends about it and that'll give you a better mindset and framework for where we were coming from when we started this and had this idea
0: yeah so hopefully you enjoyed this it was a little bit different than the last ones and uh, hopefully we'll be able to do a few more of these in the near future for now this is Andy see you pros you're not going to say bye
1: oh this is Elliot your dad Um, I'll see you guys later. Okay, Dad. Okay, bye. Bye.